Hello and welcome to the Gig Stories podcast, the podcast that tries harder than any other podcast to bring you true professionalism, which is why I'm now in the bedroom and Chris is seemingly locked under the stairs. I mean, I think that's a handcuff to a radiator there, Chris, and a duvet. Are they feeding you? They are, well, bread and water, um, <laughs> but I've got to say I'm, I'm a little bit hungry. Um, <laughs> No, I'm just trying to find because I'm not in the loft anymore because it's a bit too cold. Uh, <laughs> so I'm in the bedroom as well, a different bedroom. Um, but I've got a duvet next to me. I'm sitting on the floor on some pillows. And uh, yeah, this is... Yeah, I'll be honest, listener. It's a good job that the podcasts are audio because we've been in some interesting places doing some interesting things to try and make the sound the best that it could possibly be. And if you could see what I could see, it does look like Chris has been kidnapped or, yeah. or, or is Harry Potter, either or. Yeah. I mean, Chris Hawkins isn't sat on a floor wrapped in a duvet, is he? I mean, he could be now, shaking yeah. back and forth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's his, his... Those, those early mornings again. <laughs> he finished his early shift. In fact, that's so weird that you say that because just this morning... I don't think he he, he saw me because there certainly was no wave back. I've been doing the early shifts in Media City, so I've been I've been getting there at five five o'clock in the morning, which is very strange. And it's the only thing that's kept me going is knowing that it's it's not just me and a few puppets on CBBS. It's um, that's no way to speak about a few puppets on CBBS <laughs> and <laughs> and the Muppet Chris on Six Music. <laughs> Oh, I love you, Chris Hawkins. So I gave him a wave as I walked past the studio on, on Media City. And he blanked oh, we... you. And he totally blanked me. It's so dark, though. <laughs> I literally can't see a thing. Yeah, keep, keep telling yourself that. Yeah, it's because it was dark, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> oh, Chris. Oh. <laughs> Damn it. He was all right with me at New Order. Oh, he's changed, hasn't he? <laughs> How's your week been? It's been good. Yeah, it's been good. I went to another gig. Um, oh yes, come on. Yeah, so I went to see uh, Boo Radley's. Boo Radley's at night and day. I can't get enough of the place now. I've been once. Can't get enough of the place. I'll get rid of you. Of course, this has been on the cards because as we as we announced on this podcast, um, when the Boo Radley's got back together, minus Martin Carr, and that's that little addendum is for you hardcore Boo Radley's fans, um, you've been shooting them. With your camera. Yes, I shot them with my camera. And when they were rehearsing rehearsing for this tour, um, and they were rehearsing at, oddly enough, um, the uh, rehearsal rooms that I used to rehearse in when I was playing in, in a ska band. Um, oh, here in Manchester? Yeah, yeah, just in Ancoats. Um, it used to be called The Greenhouse, and I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but they were in the posh little studio the one with all the lovely sofas and the pot plants and all that kind of stuff oh lovely um, sofas and pot plants yeah see listener that is <laughs> that's the level that chris deems to be posh sofa <laughs> and a pot plant <laughs> yeah sofa and a pot plant i'm easily pleased you want to see his house you just have to stand up in chris's house <laughs> yeah you can't move you can't move for sofas and pot plants aspirational living that's me <laughs> Um, and so so how were they now i'm interested in how they 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 sounded 
But I also want to know, what did the audience look like? Did they look slightly grey, like, like like me? Well, Sice did um, say throughout the set, um, did anyone buy this? Did anyone buy this record? Did anyone buy this album? And there were lots of cheers, but there were. There, he did ask um, if anyone was seeing the booze for the first time, and the, there were quite a few. So yeah, were they? they've had yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just high, uh, you know, hardcore Boo Radley fans. Um, it was yeah, there were there were quite quite a lot of um, of newbies. So, so the, are they are they based in Manchester then? Because obviously, you know, Boo Radley's Scouse Scousers, Liverpudlians. Uh, are any of them not, or are they sort of all? Have they geographically moved? Are they over Manchester way now? Do you know? Rob Rob Seeker, the drummer, is based in kind of um, almost Derbyshire, I think. Um, part of the world. And Tim's based in Ireland, and uh, Sice, I think, might still be on Merseyside. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I th- yeah. So the yeah, I mean, it's it's not just round the corner stuff. Wow! So they've um, come back. They've come back and chosen Manchester. Yeah, but Tim's a teacher just now, so Tim's a teacher now, so they're, they're kind of doing stuff during half term. I love um, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. Good on them. A working, working, working band, I suppose. And how were they sounding? They were sounding great, sounding yeah. really good. I mean, Sice's voice is 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 great. He's and you just forget the. The songwriting, um, I mean, obviously Martin wasn't wasn't with them last night, but the um, just the, the the tunes were really um, just kind of sun filled. Um, I hate to, you know, if a band's from Liverpool, it's very easy to start making comparisons with Lennon McCartney. That that kind of you know, because the Lars got it, you know, in terms of just you know simple, really effective pop songs i know that not all of the boo radley stuff is pop and people often get the wrong impression because boo radley's isn't just about wake up boo which is obviously you know a great massive hit for them um but you know listening to the likes of giant steps and some of the some of the tunes on that um wishing i was wishing i was skinny was was fantastic last night really good um, there is something there's something in the water over that way isn't there because it is a thing you can really you can you, you can map that songwriting it's, it's just more more depth to the songs and to the songwriting you you mentioned wake up boo and because of what it's become people could write it off as oh it's that wake up boo boo but when you listen to it Oh my gosh, it's so technically written mm. uh, and and arranged, and it is something very Liverpool about it, very Merseyside about their songwriting. Yeah, absolutely. But also uh, during lockdown, at the start of lockdown, um, just uh, I was before we even had the idea for this podcast, um, I got some of the drummers who participated in my drumming poetry um, project flashbang oh, yeah. wallop i got some of them to do short videos like minute long two minutes 30 second long just to either demonstrate a, a beat or to give um you know give people at home a, a chance to just um experiment playing on on a, a kitchen table or you know so sophie galpin 
demonstrated the drum part for the best by self-esteem and oh, yes that is that is a tune yeah what a track absolute what tune amazing. um uh jop rick jop um former <sighs> elbow drummer he did yeah. a kind of exercise which um, involved your arms and your legs, making sure that your limbs were talking to each other. Um, there was a couple sure more. Do. Andy Parisi, Morrissey's drummer, um, he did. Um, he demonstrated the drum part for Disappointed, um, B-side to Every Day is Like Sunday. Uh, yeah. Mike Spearman took it to the next level. Mike Spearman, Everything, Everything, um, yeah. demonstrated an accented paradiddle exercise. And I will, I will put a link to this on the website. Um, because he's amazing drummer. He's incredible, and he's going to come on the pod at some point um, next year. Um, but he, yeah, if you if you look at that video, it it kind of boggles your head. It, um, a little bit of blood will start coming out of your ear from the brain work. It. No, it's 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 incredible because it's a combination of music and maths. Um, yes, and yeah, it's quite something. But sorry, the point of this, there was a yeah. point. Yep. Rob Rob Seeker, yep. Boo Radley's drummer, demonstrated the um, drum part from Wake Up Boo, which was directly influenced by the Four Tops. Yes. Yeah, so there's a real Motown feel to certainly the rhythm section in that in that tune. So again, I'll I'll pop that one um on, on the website or or we'll, we'll put it on, on social media. Um, they, they are brilliant. They are brilliant. And this is this is going off on a slight tangent here, but it is literally inside my chest. I've got to say it. And I don't know if I've, if I'm boring, cause I'm probably boring everyone, but um, because of the Liverpool connection, I hope everyone listening here has watched the documentary for get back the new, the new, uh, sorry, watched the trailer for the new Beatles documentary, get back. Oh my gosh. You've got to watch it. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for this. And yeah, you do those, those Liverpool bands, you can see a line through. They, I can easily plot lines from Boo Radley's to Motown to, um, to some of the Beatles work. So yeah. That, and and so very psychedelic as well. Some of it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad so, they're back. In, yeah. In, I'm glad the, the Boo Radley's are back and uh, good luck to them. Good yeah. luck to them. So I will um, edit the images that I took and I'll pop them as another gallery on our website. So the galleries page on our website has now got five. So it will have six by the time this comes out. So we've got New Order on there, Shed 7, uh, Echo Belly, Ash. Um, Tim Burgess. Tim Burgess and now Boo Radley's. Um, fantastic so yeah like i said i'm not going to put all of the gigs that i photograph but any that we talk about on here or any that we go to together then um i will bob them on so you can peruse and um, that's great it's, it's look a nice, at some uh, pictures. nice visual record for us and very briefly um i took my new gig buddy my 15 year old daughter we went to see inhaler at the ritz and uh, inhaler I, you know, I, I don't want to say it because they, they've done well in a lot of their writing to ignore the fact that the lead singer's father is is Bono. You <laughs> Can I just cut in here just yeah. and tell the story of me at um, Noel Gallagher and uh, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds 
Um, so I <laughs> yes. photog- photographed them at, at Heaton Park a couple of years back, and uh, what a bill. So it was Inhaler followed by White Denim. I love, love White Denim. White denim. Brilliant. Brilliant. Then, it was, then it was Doves, and then it was High Flying Birds. So that is a, that is a lineup right there. Um, yeah. But I got there... I didn't get there in time to photograph Inhaler, which was a bit disappointing. But um, yes, I am disappointed in you. But anyway, I, I I met up with my mate Matt Matt White, um, who who is a friend of the pod. Yes, Matty um, White. Actually, Chris Hawkins is producer. Yeah. Um, and I we we were just standing watching Inhaler, and I didn't know anything about them. And I said to Matt, "You know, there's a real what what does that lead singer sound? Who does he sound like?" You know what? He sounds really like Bono. I think he sounds like Bono. Do you? <laughs> and Matt was like, "Yeah, it's his son." <laughs> I feel like he's such an idiot. Yeah, it's his son. So basically, he's got exactly the same pipes. Obviously, exactly the same pipes as his dad. He has. And he has. Um, and fair play. I mean, he's got a good set of pipes. And and it's 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 ridiculous everything about him because I'm a I'm a massive U2 fan and was obsessed for a long time. And yet I somehow managed to hear Inhaler before I knew that there was the Bonner relation and then didn't hear it because I'm just sort of not quite like that. And then I find out, oh, that guy from Inhaler is Dad's Bonner. And I'm like, oh, of course it is. Now, now I listen, of course it is. Oh, you can hear his U2 now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, but those first three albums, U2, well, yeah, maybe yeah. four, maybe four. It sounds just like his his dad, and um, they it, the way he moved, the fact that he, he wears slight Cuban heels because he's perhaps like me, shorter, and his dad shorter, uh, but they sounded ridiculous. It was they ha- they cannot be just on their first album. They mm. sounded as a band like they've been playing together for years. It was it it, it was honestly ridiculous and i was genuinely blown away um but what was really exciting as well is that they were supported by wet leg now we, we if you uh, have listened to every episode you'll hear a few of our guests shell zena ren harvey uh, going on about wet leg and recommending that we see them and mandarin uh, she actually saw them the other night and they are kooky and brilliant they they they're just fantastic. I'm so glad I got to see them. And it was the last night of the tour. And this single, Shays Long, unbeknown to the girls, you could see, these guys walk on before they announce the song. These guys sort of just barge on stage in high vests, looking like Amazon delivery. And he makes her come and sign for something. And you can see that she hasn't got a clue what's going on. Like, oh, wicked. And these two guys walk on with a Shays Long and just plop it on. And then they walk off (laughs) (laughs) and they were giggling all the way through and the bass player had to sit down and played. And it was just, it was so much fun and just something I've not seen for a little while. Uh, Me personally, I'm not saying that it's not out there, but something that I've not heard and seen for a while in a band, really unique um, and and marched to the beat of their own drum. Yeah, um, similar to, fantastic. I mean, it's not the same, but similar to the Orioles, I think there's the, there's that yes. kind of okay, that yeah, kind yeah. of quality. Um, and I don't know what it is, and maybe that's good that I don't know what it is. There's a certain quality yeah. to to both of them, and I 
uh, yeah, I can't put my finger on it, and I hope I never do. Mm, they're just, if you've not seen them, get yourselves out there. Go and go and try and see Wet Leg. They were, they were just fantastic. Right. So, have we got an episode? Sorry, I keep episode. on doing that. Have we got an episode? Have we got have, an episode? Have we got an episode. We have. We have yeah. indeed, and we've been mentioning a lot of drumming and drummers, and this is a guest. I still can't quite believe <laughs> spoke to him. It's ridiculous. And, and, and when Chris messaged me and said, how about we interview Ralph Roll? And I'm thinking, okay, well, it's obviously not Ralph Roll that plays with Niall Rogers' Chic. Which one is this, Chris? Yeah, there are oh, many Ralph Rolls. <laughs> it is the Ralph Roll, Mr. King of the Cookies and, um, you know, chief drummer for uh, uh, at the Apollo live on a Saturday night for over a decade. Well and over a decade, yeah. It, it, he is unbelievable. And thankfully for you lot, I don't think you really hear much of our voices, Chris and I, in this podcast we just leave it to Ralph. He yeah. has got anecdotes and views and opinions. Honestly, it was a pleasure to sit and listen. There were there were points where I forgot we were actually doing a podcast and I was supposed to be asking him things because I just yeah, wanted absolutely. him to talk. And we did it in person as well. We The, the only other um, pod recording that we've done with a guest in person was round at Clint Boone's house for the first episode. So um, we met in a hotel in, in Manchester and, um, and it wasn't uh, a travel lodge, was it? No, it was a fancy pants mm. place. They were just about to play at um, uh, Mayfield warehouse. Was that right? No. Yeah. They were playing, uh, they were playing the warehouse project warehouse project. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks to, to Ralph for um, putting aside some, some time and to, to Anne as well. Um, a beautiful, a beautiful man, and you'll hear all about Super Anne, his uh, his fantastic uh, manager. So, really, you you need to sit and relax for this one because a beautiful voice, a beautiful soul, uh, and a hell of a talent. Here he is. It's Mr. Ralph Roll. Yes, welcome to the Gig Stories podcast. As always, with me, Alex, and him over there, Christopher. Hello. Now, does it get any more legendary than this episode's guest? I'm not sure. I mean, what do we know him as? Entrepreneur, cookie baking king, writer, <laughs> producer, composer, arranger, master percussionist, and drummer who spent 12 seasons on the wonderful American television show. It's Showtime at the Apollo. Ralph Roll, hello, hello. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Thank, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, <laughs> it's you. just lovely to see your smile. Oh, thank you very much. Now, I'm, I'm going to jump in with this because as I was checking on all the... I was trying to guess and tick off in my mind all the artists that I knew you'd played with. Mm. So I thought, right, let's check that against the what I can find on the internet. And it is... It is actually ridiculous. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, so obviously, Niall Rogers and Sheik, Toshi Kubota, Sting, Bette Midler, Bono, I'm going to ask you about that, 
Elvis Costello, Vanessa Williams, Mary J. Blige, uh, Biggie Smalls, Queen Latifah, Erica Badu, D'Angelo, John Legend, India Ari, Roger Daltrey, Dolly Parton, Freddie Jackson, Joss Stone. The list is crazy. Is there anyone you haven't played with yet, Rob? Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, all, most of the uh, people that I've wanted to play with, I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of working with them. Um, I, I, this is odd because if I could do a gig with Ringo Starr, I think I could just die in peace. Like if we could have like a dual drum set, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big Ringo fan. I've always have been. Oh my gosh. Yes. I literally want to jump up and dance because <laughs> I kid you not, as I was in the car, Every time I get in the car and turn my ignition on, yeah. it hooks up to my phone automatically gotcha. and it will play something completely right, random. Right. Mm -hmm. This afternoon, as I'm driving here, it starts playing Day Tripper. Really? And I'm now, and straight away, I just said to myself, I have to ask Ralph about Ringo. Mm. Because Ringo, it, people sort of sometimes uh, laugh and say, was he much of a drummer? But then I know from people in the in the business, hmm. they all tell me, no, Ringo was fantastic. And actually on Day Tripper, where he's sort of chasing time, you love, you love Ringo Starr. Yeah, when I, when I first started um, playing, uh, one of my early influences, uh, it, came from, it came from TV or radio. <clears throat> radio is different because you can't see who it is. <laughs> yeah. um, but you can hear these great sounds. And, and I was too young to, to be able to go and research and didn't care. But when the British invasion started, as they called it, with, yeah. with all these great groups, there was a show in the, in the States called um, The Ed Sullivan Show. Yes. And I was a kid. And there was this big buzz about this group that was coming on called The Beatles. <laughs> and um, they had been playing their music on, on the radio at the time. And the Beatles came on and Ed Sullivan couldn't finish the word Beatles for the girls screaming. If you go on the internet, you'll hear it's the beast and you don't hear because the girls go out of their minds. And what impressed me, I, I could feel the excitement myself, but Ringo looked like he was having the best time of his life playing. He just looked like the only place I want to be right now <laughs> is right here. And I just totally tunnel vision locked into that energy and kind of kept it. You know, I, I'm like, that's how I, if I play, that's how I wanted to feel. I want people to enjoy not only what I'm playing, but uh, how it feels. And so showing that was totally important to me. And, and Ringo's a big influence. I mean, I had a brief meeting with uh, Paul McCartney, shook his hand and almost fell out. Um, but if I met Ringo, it would be an amazing moment for me. Like it really would, you know. It's like the day I met Steve Gadd. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, these are guys that I really, really respect. Harvey Mason. When, you know, it's good to pay homage to these legendary, you know, drummers and 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 people who gave us music that we'll listen to for the rest of our lives. You know. Yeah. So I just, I'm a fan. I'm not only, I respect them highly, but I'm a huge fan. I was going to say the first time that I, I met you, it was part of a, a, a drumming photography project that I was doing. And, and obviously that was kiboshed for 
well, it's, it's, it's still just getting back on track after the, the whole 2020. But as part of that, I was interviewing loads and loads of different drummers and every single one of them brought up Ringo Starr as, as an influence. Yeah, they were, they were just saying, he's, he's just the, the, the master, his swing, his feel, his um, just the you know the the best drummer for the Beatles and there's that you know apocryphal story about you know uh, Lennon saying he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles but it's I mean it was never it was never said it was I think it was a British comedian who said that originally um and he he was groundbreaking really wasn't he he was he was actually more than groundbreaking to me because if you think about the Beatles before Ringo there's there's this to me, it's before be a Ringo and after Ringo. Oh, he wow. brought he brought a, you know, there was another drummer. Yeah. yeah. And when they, it's been said that when Ringo came into the band, the entire energy changed yeah. by how he approached the way he played drums, yeah. and you can hear it when he plays. He's he drives the bus. He totally. It's one of the things I talk about in my masterclass. When you when you are in the drum seat. The responsibility you have in that chair is is huge because there's so many things that you have to be aware of that's going on and at the same time still make it feel good. You have to get the tempos right. You got to get the groove right. You got to get the dynamics right. And if any of those things start out wrong, it's the drummer's fault. So it's a big response. I call it the cop on the block. I te When I teach my classes, that's what I call it. Because you have to pay attention to what the drums are doing. Because if that energy is wrong, the rest of the song, or, or even how it sets off the gig, could, could, could not be good. And so was it, and um, I, I find this genuinely interesting, he was definitely doing something different, was he? Because, you know, the Beatles admittedly all, all said, well, our influences are our black musicians from abroad, you right. know, our rock and rollers, mm -hmm. our rhythm and blues. Right. So what what did what was he doing different, Ringo, to to their I think influences in the rock and roll that, in the States? Great question. I think what Ringo was doing was just performing with freedom and understanding of what is needed. You know, he knew his responsibility. You can see it. He knew his responsibility in that chair. That it it was more than just I'm the drummer. You know, oh, I'm just playing for people to enjoy from a visual standpoint. He knew that he was driving that bus and he had to play in a certain uh, style. He didn't care, in my opinion, about uh, being flashy, if you know what I mean. He yeah. wasn't doing solos and yeah. throwing his sticks in the air and his drum set flipping yeah. around. and. Yeah. It, you know, he, it was all about the beat. It was all about Ringo getting it right. And, and you can see that in every performance. It's like, yo, we have a song. Every song is a portrait that has to be painted. And I have to make sure that the canvas starting out is right. And it's a great thing. Something that's just come to me now. Is there a difference, do you think? Because you would know, I've just you know, read all the artists you've played with. Do you think there's a difference in that relationship then between the drummer and the artist if you are part of the band. So Ringo, he played with the Beatles. Mm. You yourself, you've played with various bands, various right. artists. Do you think Ringo might have been different if he was playing with other artists as well as the Beatles? Do you think there's a, because he knows them perhaps more, or am I 
I think there's, I mean, there's a rehearsal aspect with every single situation. Some you don't have a lot of time. Some you have a lot of time. Okay. Also, you have, you have this, this, this living attitude when you're in a band, like with me and Niall, you know, um, you just know because of so much work that you do. But if it's a short period of time, it's the same approach. It, it, it all depends on what the, mu what the musician is asking for. Let me explain what that means. Yeah, please do. There, there are musicians that have an inner approach, and there are musicians that have an outer approach. Now, when you have an inner approach, your concern is all about the music. It's, that's what it is. You're, 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 you're speaking to that song. You're asking the song, okay, what do you need from me? And then you're applying that. And the outer musician is more about people seeing them. And we've seen that before, when it's more about that individual performance of the person because they're trying to do things to impress the audience based on what they're individually doing as to, as opposed to what the, the, the actual song. Right. Now, there's that fine you know, area and there's a gray area of both. Like you're playing the song and you're giving performance, but there's some people like a Ringo that's just like, I'm giving you performance. I'm giving you the song and I'm going to play this particular song to the best of my ability. I'm not going to do anything extra that the song isn't asking for. And it's always been great. That's why the, every Beatles song is so iconic and great because I think every musician in the band felt the same way. It's like we're living for the lyrics and the melody and the vibe and the music of this song. And then the next song will do exactly the same thing. We might need different colors. We might need a different, you know, uh, brush palette. We might, it might have, might be an oil painting, but it's all the sum of the parts and it's about that, that song. I honestly find that fascinating. And I could talk about just that, that relationship <laughs> for hours. But being the Geek Stories podcast, this is about live music. We are so lucky that you've given us, given us your time because this evening you are preparing to play with Niall and Sheik. You are back playing live again. How, yeah. How are you feeling? How's it been? It's been more than amazing. Um, the Sheik organization is a very special place. It's emotional. I bet. Um, during... Let's start before lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Let's start before this thing, you know. <laughs> uh, we were always uh, a band, but our band doesn't just consist of the people that you see on stage. That This is a very special place because all of us, I'm talking about from the legal staff to the administrative staff, to the production staff, to the technical staff, to the band staff, we are all on one WhatsApp that we communicate daily. And it, you, there was a lull during um, some of the lockdown because I, I think we were just trying to find our place, but we all communicate with each other. So for example, if someone's son in this organization or daughter or dog or cat had a special birthday or whatever, everyone, I'm talking everyone would chime in to say 
happy birthday or get well or it's just oh, that's the WhatsApp group I want to be on. Yeah, no, and it, and it, and it, and and it goes from uh, conversations about what we're doing uh, from a production standpoint to jokes that are endless with photos and emojis and it's it's a mess. It's so, it's so much fun. It is because it 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 keeps us just going. So how a, how was that when you actually all got back on stage together? Same. It uh, the one 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 particular situation happened that was like a Disney movie. Our technical staff is everything. Without them what you see on stage would never happen. They are pristine professionals, all of them. Um, to the point that in situations like this, we don't sound check. We literally walk on stage and everything is perfect. That's how, no, I'm serious. And that's, that's a rarity in, in the business when you have a show of this caliber and many shows of this caliber, when you can walk on the stage and sit behind your instrument and know that there's nothing that's going to be wrong. And that's because the the technicians, you know that the technicians have just gone through everything with a fine-tooth comb. Yes. Yeah, my, my drum tech, is, his name is Martin Oldham, um, was the uh, drum tech for, for uh, Charlie Watts. Really? Yeah. Uh, he just did some work with Charlie. Last time Charlie played, he was the one who did all the work in the studio to get him ready. Wow. So I'm I'm privileged that you know lucky to have this this amazing drum tech, um, but that's every position you yeah. know from our monitors to our lights to to everything. It's just it's amazing to be able to just walk on stage. So what happened is uh, the get, Niles guitar guitar tech. His name is Gert, and our monitor guy's name is Marco. Gert is from Belgium and Marco's from Italy. So we have an international staff of people and they're best friends and they hadn't seen each other in a long time. So right before we had gotten back together to actually do a gig, Gert surprised Marco and it was all set up by their wives. <laughs> they surprised Marco and they caught it on camera, them meeting for the first time. Yeah. Unbelievable. Just emotions and like, but that's how close we all are. It's just, it's an amazing band to be that close from the top to the bottom. And and that must just peak and crescendo when you're actually all on stage together and your tech and crew are watching or side stage. And that just must be the pinnacle. That just must be the best feeling ever. When we finally got together and was allowed to hug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was it was about an hour worth of hugs all around and 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 just like I you know I I'm, I'm so glad to see you, you know we we uh, follow some pretty strict uh, and stringent protocols as far as testing. We have to test every single day. Uh, we we received a PCR test the minute we we landed. I took a PCR test the minute I before I left. So we we follow all of the proper protocols uh, as far as. Um, making sure that no one in the crew is sick. And, you know, that's why we, we don't have a lot of gatherings that, like we used to, you know, at, at good times, you know, people used to come on stage and we had to stop that. And, you know, and, and uh, it's all about trying to keep each other uh, well. But the organization as a whole 
is a is such a wonderful band and a one it's it's just great you know we when when you can go on a whatsapp and you're making jokes with the attorney and then Nile will chime in and say something and then you know Merck will come in and say something crazy it's just i'm i'm in a very lucky situation yeah. that's that's what i i you know and, and i'm i'm the i'm the head nut so <laughs> yeah that's who i am Shall we take you back in time then? I think we'll do that. When you were growing up, um, was there was there a lot of music in the house? Were you surrounded by music? What was what was the setup? Well, <clears throat> being the youngest of four, my oldest sister and my brother, my sister Yvette, my brother Howie, um, mostly Howie was the music uh, person. Like he, uh, my brother immersed himself in music and he was also a tinkerer that would drive my mother crazy so he would he would want to hear music all around the house from one place so he did something one day to just show you how much he loved music my mother was out at work and I guess he found some speakers and someone had discarded and he took the speakers out of the cabinet from this uh, stereo system and went and got some speaker wire and took off the back of her uh, console yeah. and wired the speakers all the way through the house, through every room. <laughs> and my mother, Miss Rose Roll, bless her soul, was a disciplinarian to the 10th power. <laughs> and I thought it was the coolest thing to have, you know, these wires everywhere and, you know, frayed and, and, and you know, just kind of twisted that could probably burn the house down. Yeah. But that wasn't the thought at the time. I was like, wow, we have me like you walk in every room. It's in the bathroom. It's in the living room. It's, it's in the like bathroom. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And my mother came in and she went ballistic. <laughs> you know, first of all, she he took the back off of her stereo. Are you kidding? Yeah. That was like you walked into Fort Knox. <laughs> you don't touch mom's stereo. But he, my brother played all kind of music. Um, because of him, I, I had found the love of rock and roll. I found the love of gospel music. I found the love of R&B. Uh, so he was a very eclectic listener. And because of that, it kind of opened up my musical palette to want to know and hear and listen to all styles. Mostly Motown. That was the big one in the house. It yeah. was a lot of Motown, a lot of Marvin Gaye, a lot of Temptations. And... Um, and in your circumstances, then, how did that then translate, or how did you then move on to live music? So you've had your mind open to listening to music at home and, and enjoying that experience. What was then your next step to enjoying well, live music? The way how I got into playing is my brother, again, he was the, the drummer. You know, oh, my mother. Was. He was a drummer, yeah. Oh, right. he, um, one day I came home. And there was a drum set in our little, you know, 10 by 12 room with two beds and right in the middle was a drum set. <laughs> so you can imagine a young kid is like, oh my God, there's a drum set. I have an excuse to climb on the bed now because I can't walk. <laughs> but um, since my brother was the, the male role model, my father and my mother broke up actually when, when she was pregnant with me. I didn't find that out until she was 
literally on her deathbed that I didn't realize that they had broken up when she got pregnant with me. She put him out. But my brother Howie was, was the role model. So I followed everything he did, everything. So he played drums, I played drums. You know, he listened to music, I listened to music. You know, he'd comb his hair a certain way. When I had hair, I'd comb my hair a certain way. But um, he um, allowed me to play the drums. He said, you can play, but don't switch the drums around. You're left-handed. It's going to take a long time. Just sit down and play. And I would go, okay, so I'm, I play, I'm playing on a righty set left-handed, which means I'm playing open-handed because my left hand is leading. You know, and the song that I played the most was She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Going back you know, to the Beatles. Yeah. Ringo, because I wanted to do that. So I would do the whole, you know, he had this sweeping thing that he yeah. would do. So I'm doing that, that whole thing. And, yeah. and across uh, the next apartment, the way how our building was, it was angled so they could see directly into the room and when they heard me play they would watch so i had an audience in the next apartment i would just watch them and they would watch me yeah. and and uh and that's how i got started uh with the drum and when you saw them when you saw them watching you did you did you start to kind of just do a little bit extra was there did, well, did you no, change I, things I, around I didn't, no i from what i remember <laughs> i would just want to play because yeah. they were watching you know, but I would want to play just to play. Yeah. You know, but you had you had these. I don't know if they. I, I don't know if they wanted me to stop because I was making too much noise. <laughs> but but they were smiling. You know, it it seemed like it was. The, the family's called the Pabone family. I'll never forget them. Yeah. It's the Pabones, and uh, yeah. So that was my first audience. Well, I did a I did a similar thing when I was learning the saxophone, and I I started off on a tenor sax, and it was too big. It was like carrying a coffin around to school. So, but um, I just got oddly enough, we're still in the Beatles. I I just bought um, the soundtrack to Imagine, yeah. and on that um, Lennon does a cover of Stand by Me, and I put that on and realized that it was in a really good key to improvise in. I, th I think it was in G or something. And so I, I used to just improvise over and over again to, to uh, stand by me. I used to just open the window ever so slightly just in case. In case anyone was listening. Yeah, yeah. And I was rubbish. I was rubbish. But I, I, maybe I was just wanting a little bit of an audience, but only that much of an audience. Yeah, just tiny little bit. But I think that's quite quite important as a as a young player to know that the, you are not just doing it in a vacuum. You know, you, you there is the potential for other people to engage in your your playing as well. well I honestly think that ninety percent of that is is the audience in your mind. Well, yeah, yeah. You're playing. It, it's great to have someone watch, but at the same time, you don't want to be pushed to be watched. Yeah. Like you don't want your mother coming in. Come on, y'all, watch my son play drums. You know, yeah. now you're on the spot. Uh, and the, here. Right. Yeah. right, and depending on your personality, it, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, I mean, luckily my mother, she was, she she was the president of the tenant patrol, and the tenants association, and the garden program, and the summer youth program, and she was the crossing guard on the corner. So she's amazing. She's yeah. amazing. Well, I I get it kind of naturally <laughs> from from just her doing everything but because of that there were certain hours you couldn't couldn't play so uh, i you know i couldn't play all day when the drums were there i had to play you know a little while she go okay and then <laughs> she started getting these headaches that would come from nowhere 
She would go, baby, please stop, but, but mama's got a headache. I'm like, I just started playing. She said, yeah, I got a headache. Yeah. That was her code word, to stop. And it's like, okay, you got a headache, I'll stop. So which, which came first then, for a live gig? Did you go to a live gig first as a, as a punter, or was your first live performance as a drummer? No, I didn't actually get a chance to play live until I was around 16, 17. Okay. Maybe I was in senior band in school and yeah. I was in drum corps. But it but as far as a band is concerned, yeah. I no, I didn't get it. I played in my first band with a guy named uh, Leroy Leroy Evans is his name. Him and his wife had a band. And we never did a gig. We just played in the house and rehearsed and never did anything. So, What music were you playing? Do you just, remember? We, I, one of the songs I know we practiced was Summer Madness because he had just gotten a new synthesizer. Yeah. And he was learning how to, to change uh, the, the octave settings oh, to yeah. do that. that there's, a, there's a line, which he has Summer Madness by Cooling the Gang. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, this octave setting that... that um, it envelopes and it, it is it got a portamento to it and you gotta be very exact when you switch it. So yeah, we yeah. spent a lot of time watching him <laughs> try to figure that thing out. Yeah. But then I started working with a guy that uh, was actually my mentor, uh, named Ricky Williams. That was my first real experience at a at a like a band band. Yeah. You know. So So who did you see as a so did you go to gigs before that happened no, then? No, no, I was too young. I, the gigs, yes, okay. So I went to the Apollo Theater around the same time that I started playing drums. Um, my sister Yvonne, who's the next oldest uh, to me, she's three years older, um, always wanted to go to the Apollo. And the only way she can go to the Apollo is if she took me. Mom, and here's why. Because if there was anything she could possibly get into, I'm going to tell. <laughs> and, and she can't do it because her little brother's there. And my mother knew that was the whole setup. It's like, you can go. But you got to take him. You got to take Rob. Oh, that's such a little brother thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, and I, you know what? And I maybe if I spoke to her, she would probably say, "Yeah, you were a bratty brother." But I didn't think I was a bratty brother. I mean, to me, I wasn't. She probably go, "Hmm." But uh, she took me to Apollo one day, and we we'd get out of the train. It was always exciting to go to Apollo because on the weekends there were two shows. There was uh, two cartoons, a movie, and the show. That was the Apollo on Saturday. Yeah. That, it was great. So we would get there usually after the first show during the cartoons and then the movie and then the show. So as I'm walking down 125th Street, I'm reading the, the marquee and I know the groups that are there. And then there's this other group that said the Jackson Five. What? And I went, why is there a gospel group on with all these R&B groups? Like this Joe Simon and... You know, all these really cool. And then, who are the Jackson 5? So we get to the theater. And we're sitting stage left, about eight rows back is where we normally sat. And first act comes on. And then it might have been the five stair steps. And then comes out this group called the Jackson 5. Somewhere in that order. I can't remember. But this kid comes out uh, that is about my age and he's tearing the stage apart. I mean, the crowd is like going crazy. 
and his brothers are all playing, and Jackie, the oldest brother, is bending down to kind of look like he's about the size, because if he stands straight up, I'm saying, you know, if I ever met Jackie, he, I would ask him, you, do you have back problems now <laughs> from all those years of bending yeah. over, trying to match Marlon and, and Michael? But when I saw Michael doing what he was doing, I just, at that moment, I was like, I got to do that. I have to do that. Yeah. That is the best thing in the world. And what was so strange, at his age of 10 years old, Michael's performance was, if not better, just as good as the legends of the time. To be 10. Yeah. His voice, his, his stage performance, his, his uh, connection with the audience was, was crazy. Yeah. It was really crazy. It's funny, some people just seem to have that, don't they? I'm from Cardiff in Wales, mm. and um, it was it was my mum, I believe. My mum's in her late 70s, and she saw Stevie Wonder when he was little Stevie playing Cardiff. And mm. she just remembers thinking, who is this kid, and mm. how is he this good? What? How is that even possible? Because right. he would have been not much older than... Michael, when he's from Jackson 5. Right. Stevie, he, he, was, he, was... Probably about, at the time, he's probably like 14, 15, yeah. and Michael was 10 or something which like is, that. Which is still, to, to me, 14 or 15, that's, that's, that's my but daughter. And I'm he, thinking, how are these people, how are those artists so competent so, and confident? There's this thing that I've been, like, for many years I've been talking about, Ann and I talk about it, uh, my manager. It's about assimilation. Um... There are communities, there are, uh, you know, you can live on a block, you can live, you know, in an area, you can live in a town, a city, but there's an assimilation sometimes that happens on all type of personality and cultural levels that causes a, uh, a movement, if you will, of certain things, whether it's how you feel about race, people assimilate in that area about that, whether you, how you feel about music or if, if, people of a, of a certain talent level, it's, it, it, it causes the brain to assimilate to that type of uh, energy. Yeah. So what I've noticed is that that whole Detroit sound and energy, there was a lot of talent that was coming out of that town because they knew from an assimilation standpoint that that was the level you had to be at. Yeah. In church, mostly, yeah. And then that translated. I, I'm telling you, if you right, look at, let's let's fast forward. We'll go back to that, but let's fast forward 40 years now to when gospel music was was starting to become pop music. The musicians were amazing then, but the musicians that play gospel music now, they come in at a certain level that's so much higher than their than the the decades before because of what they've assimilated to. I've literally met drummers that are kids that I can't hold a candle to because they're assimilating to what the other drummers in church are doing. So in their minds, the preparation is, is, is if you want to give it a number value, instead of starting at a one, they're coming in starting at five because they just know this is what I have to do when I sit down. You, you get what I, what no, I mean? I, so totally so when, I'm, totally when I'm teaching... That's one of the things that I do. If I hear someone playing at a certain level, I immediately push them to assimilate to a different level. 
where they psychologically don't even realize that it's not like, okay, now here's one and here's two. And, you know, I really push them to, to because it works. Yeah. You know, so the assimilation yeah, that happened nice. in Detroit during that time and also the assimilation when you got to Motown, you already knew you got to come in here like ready yeah. and, and, and willing to, to learn the, the Gordy principles on grooming and dancing and, you know, or you just wasn't going to make the cut. Yeah, do you, you know, know? You, you say that and I'm thinking now just from a, a modern vocalist point of view, you have Beyonce and Jennifer Hudson. Yeah. Who both had those those church backgrounds, that performance like that, and then all of a sudden, we the public, then see them and think, well, where have they been? How are they doing that? Right. But it is that, as you say, it is that assimilation, uh, it is uh, that expectation within their community. I'll give you another example. In Japan, there are some amazing singers, and R and B has become very popular. Yeah. Over the last, uh, I would say, thirty-five or forty years. Uh, the artist that I worked with, a guy named Toshi Kubota, was the one that actually brought the R&B pop style to the forefront and became this huge superstar in Japan. He's, he's a great performer, great guy. But the singers weren't assimilating to what he was doing. He heard the American sound and started assimilating to the, the, vo the vocal structure and the, the different things that, that need to be done. But the, the people that were singing were doing more karaoke fun stuff. Right. Okay. So they, they have a vocal presence that's more karaoke style, you know, even with the so-called popular singers. But then you go right across to Korea and the singers over there were listening to R&B and they were assimilating to the R&B sound. So you'll find that you have so many singers in Korea that are ridiculous singers. And if you don't believe me, just go to YouTube yeah. and pull up Korean Gospel choirs. Wow. I promise you, it's totally different than if you pull up uh, uh, Japanese gospel choirs. It's the approach and the sound and the assimilation that they said, okay, well, I guess that's what we have to do because that's what he's doing and it's becoming popular. That's what he's doing. So that's what they started listening to. So it's everywhere. I'm telling you, it's in cultural society. It's in music. And I've really taken time to watch this. Even with, vote, with, with, with when you, you said you're from Scotland. Okay, I can tell that you spent a, a lot of time outside of Scotland because of your vocal inflections. Mm. I couldn't even tell you if you were Scottish. But if you go to Scotland, if you go to Glasgow, which we just came from, yeah. everyone speaks a certain way. If you go to the Bronx, I can tell you if someone walks in here right now, you're from the Bronx. I know it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's that okay. assimilation that is universal in so many different ways, from politics to music to religion that kind of molds society. I'm, I'm going to have to thicken up my accent, I think, because <laughs> obviously I've, I've, I've got soft. I've been here for too long. Yeah. I mean, I've been here 20 years. I've been in Manchester well, but I can hear it because if, if you just, I wouldn't be able to understand you. <laughs> if it was my original accent, you certainly wouldn't. No, no, no. <laughs> Chris and I, we love everything related to live music and we yes. love fun stuff as well. Now, you've just told us that one of your first gigs was the Jackson 5, which is incredible. Well, Chris and I, uh, one of the reasons we started this podcast was we both uh, found out that we both kept scrapbooks. Cool. With, which we, we kept our concert ticket stubs in. Cool. And we, were, and we just thought we were the only geeks that did that, and I think we might be. Now, it might be different for you because you, you then went on to, you know, performing. Um, 
how is there anything that you have kept over the years? Oh, absolutely. Whether it was ticket stubs. Oh, oh see, now this is fascinating. We love this stuff. Is it ticket stubs, or have you kept your laminates, or what? What is it that you I collected? have? Hundreds of laminates <laughs> that I, I, you know, that I keep. My my uh, my wife one day said, "What do you want to do with these?" And I gave her a look like, "Oh." You can get rid of the T-shirts, but yeah. you don't touch the laminates. Don't even. So, don't so, uh, so in the uh, in the restaurant, uh, she came up with an idea to take some of the laminates and and take a, a floor tom and turn it into a table. So we put we bought a piece of round plexiglass, put it on the top. Inside, it's lined with some of the uh, the um, backstage passes, and in the bottom. So it's almost like you're eating, and it's a it's a showpiece from all of the places that I've gone, and that's maybe like two percent of the the backstage pass. I have, I would venture out to say that I have at least four hundred backstage passes in my house. Oh, you, you yeah. must do. You must yeah, do. and 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 it's great to 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 see these things. You know, can you can you share because you you've got four hundred, but share some of your favorite ones. So I suppose I'm asking you really about. The actual gigs. Okay. So which ones would you save if there was a Okay, fire? like the really special ones is my, my Toshi backstage pass, yeah. um, my Cher backstage. Cher. Uh, I have a few different from Nile Rodgers and Sheik. My Freddie Jackson is really important to me. Wow. Um, who else do I have? Oh, God. A lot of festivals uh, with uh, backstage passes like the, the Essence Fest and the the Budweiser Superfest back in the 80s, I still have that. My Evelyn Champagne King backstage pad. I'm intrigued by Budweiser Superfest. <laughs> so, right, not not by the beer, but by, it just sounds like that that will have had a lineup. Oh. Can you remember who was on oh, that lineup? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a story. Go on. This is a good one. Yeah. The Budweiser Superfest uh, did from small events for communities to arenas mm. and, and stadiums. And the uh, promoter is a guy very famous in the business. His name is Al Heyman. So he partnered up with Budweiser to do these festivals every year. And one particular festival that we did was in um, San Diego at the uh, Padres uh, baseball stadium. Right. Huge, huge place. The lineup <laughs> was African Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force. Yes. Al Heyman and, and, the, and the partners, the Daz Band, um, Luther Vandross, wow. Evelyn Champagne King, Ashvin and Simpson, Love them. Rick James. Rick James. Crazy. Just amazing lineup of people. This is 1983. Were you playing? I was playing. I was playing with Evelyn Champagne King. So here's the deal. That's ridiculous. So... We all of these great groups come on. Uh, it's it's Al Heyman comes on and and Daz Band and uh, Soul Sonic Force and and uh, Ashford and Simpson, Luther Van. All these great groups come on, and uh, the promoter comes to Evelyn Champagne King because she's got the number one record in the country, Love Come Down. It was like number one for weeks. Yeah. Everybody loves that song. Yes. Love Come Down, a great song, produced by Kashif. The promoter says to her, you have the number one song. You have the uh, opportunity to close the show, if you'd like. Rick James will come on before you. 
and then you will close if you want to do that. Now, she decided, her management decided, Budweiser Superfest, big show, love come down, close the show. Okay? Now, Rick James gets the word that he's not closing. Oh. Rick is cool. He's cool. Rick comes on stage and burns the building down. <laughs> burns it down. I mean, the show, everybody's mouth was hanging open. And then in the middle of the show, he stops the show and brings the Mary Jane girls on stage. Yeah. And the crowd just erupts. They just, all they did was stand there. But really? the Mary Jane girls at the time was like the in vogue of that era. Yeah, yeah. Craziness, right? Crowd goes out of their mind. Rick James does his thing, walks past Evelyn T uh, Champagne King and says, your turn. <laughs> we played to crickets. After Rick James played, people oh just said, well, God. I guess that's it. No. Yeah. Lesson learned. Oh my God! So, so had people left. Or people started leaving during our show. No, they just was done with with. I've had that happen before. Wow. Was as is another lineup, but but what I'm saying is, as an artist, Evelyn kept her professionalism. We played to the best, but we people were leaving yeah. because Rick James was really the show. Yeah, and, and how do you how do you cope with that in that moment? Are you Distracted? What are you thinking? I gotta play harder well, or better? Or well, I'm such do? a I'm such an, a, a crazy person. I'm just looking up there, going, "Wow, this is funny." Yeah, <laughs> this is funny because people are <laughs> people are flying out of here like you wouldn't believe, and you know we're playing to chairs now. Yeah, but <laughs> but I suppose it, none of that is your fault. You no. play you play the best that you can play. You're still gonna get paid. Thank you. When I used to play clubs uh, with with uh, with my band, I used to be in a band called Indigo. And on some nights, there would hardly no one there, you know, and then some nights it was packed. Usually on the nights that no one was there, my older sister was there. She was one of the only, uh, of the two people that was in screaming like I'm playing in Madison Square Garden. That's my brother! <laughs> so I've learned that where my philosophy came about music, you play for the music. You don't just play because there's 10 people or 100,000. You play for the music. And whoever is there to enjoy it, whether it's just the band, and I've had that happen, um, you you play. You do your show because that's what the connection and the love and what you're supposed to do as a professional. Yeah, you don't play less because there's five people in the audience. You That's not fair to them. That might be five devoted fans that know, you know 500 other people that next time will go, you missed a killer show. Yeah, you need to get course. out there. Do you, do you have any, are you superstitious or um, do you have any rituals that you, you, you go through before you play live? Or? Yes. Oh, do you? Yeah. That we can I, ask you about Yeah, it. yeah, you can. No. I, I go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's, when they say stage, time to go, uh, I go straight to the bathroom. Yeah. Now, are you having a wee or are you throwing up? No, no, no. I go to, you know, because the last thing you want is to be playing and you got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So I, I... I would argue that's not really a superstition. That's just... No, it's not a superstition. That's common sense, yeah, right? <laughs> you don't tie your shoelaces and then undo them and tie them again. Or... <laughs> Five minutes of stage, I'm still holding on because yeah. I want to go at the very last moment, so...
are going to do our quick fire round. Yes. Who's your favorite drummer? I don't have one. I have a few. But uh, sitting way at the top of the, the list is Steve Gatt. Yeah. Yeah, he's a uh, big influence on approach, style, uh, Harvey Mason, Bernard Purdy. I would have to say, you know, there's, there's in the top five, those are the top three. Yeah. You know, Purdy just had a whole thing, an approach that was so just beautiful. You know, as well as Harvey Mason just kind of created his own lane, and Steve Gass. So when you picked up a record back then, before you even knew to read, you knew who was playing because yeah. of their styles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what was your favorite work of, of Steve Gadd? I know he did lots for Simon. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Yeah, I had the pleasure of playing that with Paul Simon. And did you? Yeah. It was the highlight of my life. Oh, To be able to play that song. Yeah. Yeah. Steve is a nice guy, by the way. Yeah. Did you did you try to add a little bit of yourself oh, to that, or oh, were you just absolutely. trying to go? It's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to play Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover like the record, yeah, yeah. like Steve Gadd, because it 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 deserves that. Yeah. It doesn't deserve. What I try to tell most musicians when I'm teaching is you're serving something so much higher than yourself. And once you get that, you'll work forever. When you realize that you're serving the music, yeah, yeah. you know, there will be points where you have to add some of your own salt and pepper and Tabasco sauce, but you're serving <laughs> a song that needs its attention on every level. Mm. And that's just how I think. It's, it has nothing to do with me. I love that. I lo I, I've heard you talk about that before, and I, I love that, um, that way, the, the way that you treat the song as a kind of holy relic in terms of, you know, the, the respect that you, you, you give it. That's great, I love that. Yeah, well, it's, it's true, and that's how I, you know, it's, when I got the gig with, with Nile, my goal was to uh, give Tony Thompson all of the, re the respect due to whatever song that he played. And, and, you know, because I came behind Omar Hakim on this gig, yeah. which is, you know, yeah. those those are like, those are Titanic shoes to fill, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So, but my thing was, I'm going to give it more of a Tony sound as opposed to a Ralph or an Omar sound. Yeah, Omar led the way in showing me different um, ins and outs that I still use to this day. Yeah. But as far as how I approach the Sheik sound, I'm, go I'm back to what Tony did. One of my favourite um, live experiences was seeing, um, I saw Herbie Hancock with Wayne Shorter in, in Glasgow and the rhythm, the rhythm section was Stanley Clark and Omar Hakim. I mean, that's a super group right there. But it was the duels that they did, so you had Stanley Clark doing this slap bass and then it was, sound, I mean, it was, it was, he was playing percussion basically. And then it was just a duel, and then it was together, and then it, so they were they were having a battle basically. But it's one of the most thrilling things that I've I've heard live. Yeah. It's incredible. Can you remember a time? I'm sure you've probably had lots of these. When you're performing live, you you be on that kit, you're playing, you're at a gig concert, and you just thought, this is it. It just doesn't get better than this. Quite a few times. Uh, musicians will tell you that the, the experience is so overwhelming that it brings you to tears on stage. It's happened to me quite a few times. 
where you you look you just <clears throat> you look around and you go, I can't believe this is happening right now. Really, you just you, you get overwhelmed, and it's it just kind of shows uh, the personal dedication to the moment, to the music, to the hours of practice that you're. I'm I'm actually here doing this. You know. Do you do you yeah. feel that? Do you feel that coming from the fans as well? Absolutely. There's a point where you lose the the space between uh, band and stage. Really? It's that energy, and, and you'll hear this. It's this revolving energy that happens between the audience and the band on stage, and it, it, it just starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more connected and more connected. You know, with, with Chic, the connection actually becomes connected when we bring yeah. people from the audience onto the stage and the 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 connection is now complete. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> it's really a great thing, but you feel that energy. Like when I'm doing Let's Dance, I'm there's a performer that you probably know in hip hop called Dougie Fresh. Oh yeah. Dougie Fresh is my boy. I've known Dougie for years. We've worked together for a long time. Yes. But Dougie is the ultimate crowd pleaser he can i mean if you go to a dougie fresh show guaranteed everybody's going to be going crazy because dougie just knows how to be an mc be a call of response so when i'm doing less dance i'm basically just doing what dougie i've watched him so many times at the apollo and doing shows the minute dougie walks on stage he has this uh this air of of comfort not ego but yeah. just like, all right, y'all, I'm you and you're me, and this is about to go down. So everybody say yeah, and it's like a raw, yeah. you know. So he does these things, and I just use it in in less dance, you know, the same kind of style that he does. Is just being comfortable to connect the audience and make them feel like they're all part of the show, and it's it's uh it's a it's a New York MC thing, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that I've always been fascinated by that relationship. Because as, as a, as a non-musician, but someone who's gone to live gigs, I, I've said on this podcast time and time again, for me, it's a spiritual experience. And I'm glad that you feel that. Because ju just last night, so I've been harping on about uh, uh, an English lad called Sam Fender. Mm. And he's very much like Bruce Springsteen influenced. He's only in his mid-twenties. And I took my 15-year-old daughter to see him last night. And we're both obsessed. Now, this poor lad had a, an, his first album go to number one a year before lockdown. He then had vocal problems, so he had to cancel all his, his gigs. Then had the pandemic. In the meantime, he's still, he's gone huge. Number one singles, albums. He's about to release his second album and he's just starting to play gigs again with his band. And so he's gone from playing, you know, your, your back garden, shed or garage to huge venues and last night in town here in Manchester uh, my daughter and I saw him and I'll be honest the crowd was incredible it was like we'd all just been released after 18 <laughs> months of a pandemic from prison exactly right. from prison and ev I've never COVID seen it there was prison. for every 3,000 people I could see in front of me stood up there was 3,000 on their shoulders I mean it was it was crazy I was like wow these young kids are getting stronger aren't they and the last song, the last song, he always finishes with a song called Hypersonic Missiles, which was what sort of put him into the stratosphere. 
and at the end it, it was so crazy and you could see the band just losing their minds the crowd was losing their minds and you saw him break down and he had to give a quick wave and he he he, he just got off the stage crying I'm in tears. I'm looking at my 15-year-old daughter who's just shouted out every... Oh, I feel emotional thinking about it now. And it's just... I just love... It's like a it's like a drug. It's probably better than any drug you could ever take. And I'm glad that you feel that as well. Yeah. Especially as a drummer up at the back there behind loads of, you know, loads of kids. So you, you feel that as well. <laughs> All the time. Um, sometimes a lot more than others. But... Um, when I'm doing my master classes and sees my emotion teaching these kids and watching them absorb your energy, it's an amazing thing. Um, the, the COVID penitentiary is real. Uh, and, and getting released is, is, for all of us, has been the most amazing thing. And when we came back out the first night this uh, of our show, we were doing um, We Are Family, and I just started bawling, crying uh-huh. uncontrollably. Yeah. And I was trying to hide, you know, so I wouldn't distract people. But I, <clears throat> I lost total control because of the fact that people, you can see them, the people just like, I'm so glad. To be out of my house, yeah. listening yeah. to lot, being able to touch someone next to you, yeah. you know that you don't know, just bumping into them, you know, is was a great thing. And yeah. then to know that I'm here with everybody, it was just I was done. You were there with your entire WhatsApp group. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, basically. Yeah. And it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful thing. Ian, <laughs> Ian, a lighting guy who is so amazing. I think he saw it because there's a camera right in front of me and I think he saw me crying and all of a sudden the light slowly started going up and I'm like, you. <laughs> like, Cause I can't, I'm, I got two sticks in my head. So I can't wipe my eyes from, you know, crying, but it, it was the, the, just the overall emotion of pleasing the people and seeing them enjoy it and being on stage with these amazing people and the folks backstage and it was just like wow 18 months just disappeared like that yeah just like that it was it was like 18 months just gone but that's that's the power of of uh the arts and i'm talking about all the arts you know not just yeah you know people who play instruments i'm talking about painters and poets and dancers and you know we're all trying to connect all of us podcasters podcasters really <laughs> really <laughs> with your computer instruments and no. um, <laughs> well this is our first um, in-person interview that we've we've had wow. since since the, the yeah. pandemic I'll be over zoom but... it's so crazy that here's my takeaway I don't know about you guys but covid has basically proven everything that I've been trying to tell people through my classes through my just overall energy, my entrepreneurial side, is that if you don't get it now that we're all connected, if you don't get it now, you'll never, ever get it. This one thing that has killed many and sickened many didn't stop 
at the border of the UK. Didn't stop at the border of the Bronx. Didn't stop at the border of Taiwan. It, it went completely around the world. And people all became sick of this, that got it. You know, I had COVID. And I tell you, I've had pneumonia as a kid. And if you want to compare the two, you don't want to mess with COVID. COVID is not to be played with. It is, you know, so we're all connected is what I'm saying. I have folks in Japan, someone just texted me yesterday to say that the government decided to lock the entire country down under quarantine and surveillance for 14 days because it's so rampant and out of control because of their F-ups as well as the situation with our last president and his major F-ups that, you know, I mean, not to get into a whole political thing, but, but at the end of the day, if you don't see that we are not all connected now, you'll never get it. If you don't see that the needs of all of us is equal, you'll never get it. You'll never get it. In fact, I don't even want to add anything to that because that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. I'm aware of our time. So, Chris, I think it's fantasy band time. So you, you're creating your own your own band, but you, you don't have too much time to think about it because I know that we, we, we don't have much time left. So um, who's who's drumming? You can have two drummers. So one of them's you, obviously. Yeah. Um, who else is drumming? So you've got a drummer. How about, can I be the manager? Because there's some people, okay. That's fine, then you can have two drummers. So the drummers are going to be, I'm going to have three drummers. Okay. What? Yeah, this is a, this is a band is going to kill. Uh, my drummers are going to be uh, Steve Gadd, Harvey Mason, and Bernard Purdy. Troublesome three drummers. My percussion is going to be Ralph McDonald. What? Uh, <laughs> okay, so now you have, uh, you, you now have lead guitar, bass guitar, uh, and keys. Okay, Le- lead guitar. Yeah. Who would Only I one. pick? Only one, Ralph. Only one. You don't have to choose, Niall. Okay, no, it's okay. no, no. My lead guitarist is a guitarist in New York City named Sherrod Barnes. Okay. <laughs> right, we're checking him out. Oh, Sherrod Barnes is everything and a bag of chips. He's ridiculous. <laughs> He's really that guy. I like uh, that. I like that. Okay, on, on, well, because he works so well together and he has the same last name, I would have to put Jerry Barnes on bass. I know you didn't say bass yet. No, he said bass. But Keys, Keys is also a guy uh, in New York named Salon Lerner. Okay, where would uh, we know him from? So Salon has played on a lot of stuff with uh, Louis Vega. Okay, yeah. He's done a lot of productions himself. Yeah. Um, Salon is, is amazing as a keyboard player. Just, okay. you know, can I have an organist? Oh, yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, I like this. He's having uh, his fantasy, man. Uh, let me see. Uh, I think uh, his name is, we call him Shed, but his name is Shedrick. Right. Yeah, Shedrick is, is, he used to play with Whitney Houston. Right. He would be my organist. He's yeah. quite good then, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. That, that, go on, go on, just the last one now. Yeah, he's singing. Oh. <laughs> Who is singing? Oh, how many can I have? Do you know what? Actually, and I've not asked you this, Chris, we're going to let you have... One male and one female. Oh, man, you're making it hard. No, I, I'm making it easy for you. I was going to okay. say just one, but you can have one male okay. one female. One male and one female. One of my favorite singers is obviously Kim Davis, but I, someone I've known for years, and we actually used to date back in the 80s. Oh, hello. Her name is Cindy Mizell. Right. Cindy Mizell has sung with everyone from Bruce Springsteen 
I mean, she's. If you Google Cindy Mizell, you'll see her 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 resume is amazing, and she's an amazing, amazing singer. You know, I would easily put her up there with the Arethas and the Whitney's. Whoa! Oh no, Cindy's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, and my male that. singer is a guy, another guy in New York, who I love, named Mike Davis. Mike Davis. Mike Davis is. Look him up. You'll right. you'll you'll see what I mean when you listen. My See, I'm, I'm thinking it, the, most of these guys are from New York. This, this might be. Good. We could we could actually this this could happen. Hang on, you know we I mean? can put this band we can put this band together, can't we? Oh, Shedrick Mitchell. I didn't say his last Shedrick name. Mitchell, Mitchell right? yeah, I didn't say his last name. I'm sorry. Brilliant. How, how say real it again? is this? We can put this band together. Can oh we no, you could absolutely. Yeah, no easy. We might have to get a budget right. together. I'm, I'm, I'm having a word with your manager who may or may not be sat next to me silently. We're going to put this band together for one, for one night only. Oh, it would be ridiculous. Yeah. What a band. Our, our, our last last couple of questions. I know yes. that you've been producing a couple of bands. I yeah. want to hear about these bands. So, so again, my career has taken different directions. Many, many. Um, <laughs> when I was a, a young man, which I'm not now. Um, you certainly look it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, there was a lot of independent record companies that were popping up. And my thing has always been, if you want to do something, you need to study the marketplace to see what's going on. So all of these independent companies started coming up like uh, Profile Records and uh, Tommy Boy and Def Jam and oh, yeah. Jive and all these really, and they had great artists on all these labels. And I'm like, okay, how can I do this? I want to do this. So as a kid, to, uh, when I was le learning drums, I would volunteer. So I started trying to get into the record company thing by volunteering to present songs for different artists to different labels, just to see if I could get in. And I went to Jive Records with a friend of mine's uh, cassette uh, named uh, Jan Holmes, which was like, I would say, the style is early Babyface. He was Babyface before Babyface. That style of writing and music. Yeah. And I brought it to Jive Records, and they said, no, it's good, but you know we, we can't use it right now because that's not what we're going. They were basically doing more hip-hop and less R&B at the time, and they were, they were getting groups like Fresh Prince and, and, and KRS-One and, you know, like that, because it was easy to make money from, from those yeah, groups. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. But somehow I ended up staying on their radar, and <clears throat> they called me in for an interview for an A&R job. And it was down to two people. And I got the job as a, as a yeah, doing A&R. And how old were you? Oh, I was 26, yeah. 26, 27. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'd stopped, uh, stopped playing to do that. But I wanted to learn the, the, the record company business because I wanted to open my own label. Well, that didn't happen, but I started producing. Um, my first production was actually a comedy record. One song, 
Do you remember the, the hip hop song Roxanne? Yeah. Okay. I did the this, this song Roxanne's a Man. There was about nine Roxanne records. And I hated hip hop, believe it or not. Really? I did. When hip hop first came out, I hated it. So I made a mockery of it, <laughs> wrote this song called Roxanne a Man, as a man, and Streetwise Records picked me up. So it's very funny. If you go on YouTube, you'll hear it. It's yeah. the silliest thing oh, in the world. Right. Well, definitely is. Yeah, what happened is Roxanne went to jail and, and then came out a lady is what happened. It's stupid. Um, but, but the production bug had bitten me, so I had a four-track recorder in my house. One of the first productions is a DJ that I, that's very popular named Kid Capri. I did his demo, started writing. Then I, I got the job at Jive, and I ended up getting uh, a commercial an account where I was doing production for commercials. And the first big one that we did was um, a company called Dark and Lovely, which is a huge hair care company. That was the very first one. Mike Davis, I chose him to sing. Right. I ended up signing Mike Davis to Jive Records. Um, but the production bug had bitten me. I started a production company with Armando Colon and Gerard Harmon. We started doing remixes, and this started to go really well. <clears throat> and then um, we were going to move to Atlanta as a, as a team. Armando left first. It kind of caused us to go in different directions. Oddly enough, we're still the best of friends. I spoke to Armando and Gerard just yesterday. But the production thing had to take a back seat to the plane because I started getting so many gigs, but I still wanted to produce, but there was no time. And then I had the bright idea to start a cookie company, which also took up a lot of <laughs> yes. my time. So it was the logical. Thing. Yeah, it was obviously, <laughs> wasn't it? Right. There was, you see, he agrees. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, he does. So <laughs> I do drum lessons and I get drummers from all over this particular time and put out that we were doing drum lessons and I got a lesson from a guy in Italy. His girlfriend decided as a gift to give him a drum lesson with me. So he flies over from Italy to, what was it, Manchester? To Manchester. And I'm like, Ann says, there's someone here from Italy who's taking a lesson with you. And I'm going, what, who, what are you talking about? From where? He said, yeah, they flew over from Italy. Go in, uh, his name is Francesco Carli. Nice guy, the biggest smile, they're both there. We take the lesson, we become cool. He comes back, takes another lesson. We become Facebook friends. The next time he comes back, he has this demo of this song. He says, could you listen to us? Of course. He listens to the song. It's a song they did called uh, you, you Gave Me Love. And as soon as I heard it, I said, I got to produce that. It's like something hit me like a lightning bolt. I said, wow. I got to produce this. Yeah. And he said, are you serious? I said, I'm absolutely serious. So I produced the song. I feel that it came out. It's really funky, really yeah. funky song. Came out really well. We produced four additional songs since then. I flew back over. This happened right before COVID. Right. Right. Uh, and then I did a session. The other production, there's uh, some guys in, in uh, London called the Disco Freaks. Right. So they had me up for uh, an interview. And they asked Anne would I be available to do a, a session. And I'm like, listen, of course, I'll, I'll do the session if you want me to. So I, I end up going into two of the sessions. So there's two different projects. And I'm playing drums, and I'm hearing all of these things that could go on in the song. So I said, do you mind if I give you a suggestion, if it's okay? He says, yeah. So I give him the first suggestion, and he really liked it. He said, what else you got? 
<laughs> Keep it coming, please. Bro. So I started giving more suggestions. It was like, okay, this is this is really cool. So Ann says, you know what? You might want to talk to them about producing them because you, you you're coming up with all these great ideas. You know, see what they think. So she approached them, and they said, if he wants to produce, yes, because this is really great. So I ended up producing them as well. So now the, now the production thing is coming back. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing the group in, in northern Italy. They're called So Much. And the group in London is called Axnir. That's that's the name of that group. They're, they're, they're both doing like a... a the, the genre that I've given this new thing is called Retro Nouveau. Okay. Retro Nouveau. Where it's this old kind of cool sound but with some a little bit of you know new stuff added to yeah. it. Yeah. So the the groove that you hear is definitely from the seventies, eighties, in both projects. But it's a new kind of feel in some of the spots. Yeah. When in retro nouveau. Yeah. When can we um, hear them? But when will we be able to see them? Do you know yet, or is that too? So that... both groups now have their product available uh, on Spotify. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go to Spotify and you look up so much. Uh, you'll find it's one word so much, and their website is so much band dot com. And the, yeah, the first song is called Studio Fifty Four for them. And um, the Axneers' first song is uh, what is the name of the song? You got the look. Thank you. You got the look is Axneers' first song, and they're both cool. They're both cool groups. I really love so much. There's a there's a couple of um, musicians in in uh, so much that are. They'll, they'll kind of blow you away. Yeah. Will, will there be life plans? Do you think? When oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay. There's no doubt about it. I have, I hope, hopefully, once we start getting some some airplay and people start noticing these young kids' yeah. uh, ability and the the music is fun, it's Amazing. really fun stuff and it's good good stuff. And I kept working with them because I can see um, that that light in their eyes about wanting to do things and they absorb everything in, in a short order they're not going to need me to produce they'll be able to do it on their own that's, but but that's uh, so, that, that sounds so exciting it is it's, we'll it, look out for that. yeah and i would just like to point out the the one thread through that that anne is superwoman yeah, okay, I, yeah I, i'm just gonna see i was i watched x-men again the and <laughs> and and this person flew by and i went you know it was, I, I tried i went wait is that that's <laughs> That's Dublin woman. That's that a that's a that's a X-Men name, Dublin woman. That's yeah. clearly yeah. everyone needs their yeah. own. She was man. right next to the Hulk. I'm saying Dublin woman. No. <laughs> everyone needs a man. Well, Ralph, we've come to we've come to the end and it, We didn't talk about cookies. Oh of course. We I I, I want to talk about cookies. Okay. Well, really quick, I do want yeah, to. Yeah, tell us about because it is we did men we mentioned it briefly at the top and people that perhaps don't know and just know you as as Ralph the drum must be going. Cookies? What are they on about? But I mean, it's not some silly joke, is it? You you are actually uh, a master baker. You are Mister <laughs> Cookie. Tasted, I've tasted one. Oh my. God. You've had one. Yeah, I've had one. With Gabe, Gabe's had one as well. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah. Go on, you. I don't even know what to ask. You tell I, me, I, how does that? How does it, that it kind of started. Is Super Anne behind it? <laughs> yeah, Super Anne is behind it, and <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain her role in, in the whole thing. She flies cookies 
from from New York to to Dublin in about three minutes. And I don't know how she does it, but she she no. Um, I started as a young kid just watching my grandmother and mother cook. I was a pretty shy kid, and um, being around so many women in the house, I just that side just seemed natural to me to want to do certain domestic things, which all men should actually do. Just so you know, if you have a son, teach him how to be domestic, you know, and show him all the oh, things yeah. that are necessary. I, I knew how to sew, I knew how to cook, yeah. you know, and my mother just demanded that all of us learned all the same things. My sisters were in the sports. We learned how to do certain things in the kitchen. Good. So growing up, being a shy young man, which you might not believe, I couldn't <laughs> talk, talk to girls very well. So I would, my thing was, my introduction was, was cookies. I would bake some cookies and give them some. Really, I was I was such a nerd. No, you. My X Men. I'm nerd. That no. That that. I'm sorry. That's not nerdy. That's like <laughs> super romantic. Thank you. Well, it it worked. That I mean, is, uh, hello, I'm Ralph, and these are my cookies. Right, right. Well, that sounds a little perverted, but <laughs> no. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hi, I'm, uh, <laughs> Hi, I'm Ralph, and these are the cookies I baked. <laughs> <laughs> He's not just a master musician, is he? Oh, so, um, <laughs> after my mother passed away, my production company, same guys, Fat Cat Productions, Amando and Gerard, would come over. Um, I said to them one day, yeah, let me just bake some cookies. And they were like, what are you talking about? Let's just go bake some cookies. So I did. Uh, they thought it was weird. <laughs> um... But after that, they were like, okay, make sure the cookies are here every time we get together. To work. Yeah, yeah they, that was your first mistake. Making yeah, them. exactly. Then when my girlfriend moved in, we decided to give gifts to all of our friends. So it was about 36 friends and family. We couldn't afford to actually buy so many gifts. So I said, let's make the cookies. So we did. Everyone got back in touch and said, you need to sell them because these are super, super good. That was the introduction to the beginning of the, the cookie company. The first night, it was at an open mic that I was uh, playing at on a Tuesday. And we brought in the bags of cookies. We brought in samples. Believe it or not, the, the, the MC and singer for that night was, is my friend Shelby J, who was a singer with Prince for years. Yeah. Now. And D'Angelo. So we were all in our humble start. You know, at the time, I was doing Showtime with the Apollo. So I was working every night of the week. Anyway. People love the cookies. There was a guy from a magazine at the bar and said, this is a great story. You're playing on Showtime at the Apollo. Your girlfriend is a Juilliard graduate, and you both are from the projects. This is a cool story. Can I do one? I said, of course. We were so ill-prepared. We didn't have a phone number. We didn't have a website. We didn't have anything. So my sister gave me her beeper number. This is all true. <laughs> and it was, one, it was a pager with one of those PIN numbers. Yeah, yeah. So they did the article. At the end was the phone number with the pen. I said, we'll get, you know, we'll get a couple of calls. I was so wrong. The magazine was YSB, which was owned by BET Television. So they had thousands of subscribers. So the, the day the magazine came out, we, my sister would get one call, and she'd say, okay, you got a call. And we was like, wow, this is exciting. Then she'd call back and go, okay, there's three more that just came in. And we go, oh, wow. Oh, I have 20 now. Oh, boy. <laughs> there are 50 people you know so it just kept 
So now we're, you know, sometimes you got to be careful what you ask for because it just kept coming. Oh, and coming. oh dear. So now the apartment with this one oven didn't work anymore. So we had to think of something to do. So my, my um, friend, Patrice, who lived right across the street from me, mother, owns a brownstone, and the above-ground basement was available. And I said, Patrice, ask your mother if I can turn that into a, a, a baking space. He said, I'm not asking my mother, you ask her. Because <laughs> they were equally strict, my mother and his mother. Yeah, yeah. So I went out and told her, Miss Duran, I have a cookie company, I gotta gut the kitchen, I gotta do this. She said, okay. And she let me do it. And that was my first uh, cookie uh, factory. And now we have a 1,200 foot uh, factory in the Bronx. Uh, we put out a lot of cookies for a lot of companies. And I just signed a deal with Walmart. Hey. What? Yeah. Congratulations. You signed a deal with Walmart? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Does that mean we will get them over here now? Because Walmart has it so, Asda. So, segue. This is where Ann comes in. <laughs> Super Ann. Super Ann has, uh, she sent me a book. This is true. Ann sent me a book of all of these very influential people in the business, right? And one of those uh, people uh, we decided to send an email to, to ask if this person who's very, very rich, I think he's a billionaire, would you like to come to my gig? And they wrote back and said yes. So at that point, Ann sent another email, gave him more information about who I was or whatever, and he came to the gig. And uh, we had a great conversation. We talked about cookies. I told him about the Walmart deal. He says, well, we need to have some more conversations moving forward. He's doing a new TV show. He's already on TV on BBC, right? Channel 4. Channel 4, yeah. Um, so he wants to have me on his new thing that he's doing, which is um, a are podcast. Are we allowed to know his name? His name is yeah, Eric Collins. Yeah, he's a, he's he's a very cool guy. Uh, I was very happy to not only meet him, but have a chance to talk to him and, and realize how nice of a guy he was. Amazing. He was very, very, very sweet guy. And now he wants to do some things. So the goal is to talk to him about bringing stores like Ben's, like Millie's to to the uh, UK. Oh, That's the my goal. goodness. And I think, we'll, I think we're going to be able to do it. I think it's going to be okay. Because now, since we got the Walmart deal, we just had a meeting with Kroger, which is another yeah. huge chain. Yeah. And so I think we're on our way. It can, took 25 years, but can Chris passion be, has no, can we, no date. Can we be at the opening? In fact, a mutual friend of ours, Chris Hawkins, as well, from BBC Six Music, who also loves your cookies. The three of us, Chris, Chris, and myself, we will be at the first opening well, of a story. It, it, if, if all goes well, I would say that sometime next year, we will actually have a store. And, I, and honestly, not because we're here, but this is the place to do it. Manchester is the place to make it happen. Yes, yeah. super. <clears throat> no, for real. Man, a friend of mine, Nick, Nick Gosling, who's, he, speaking of, really quick, I know we've been here a long time. But Nick, Nick started out as my drum tech. And he did something that was on that X-Men level. I, my stick bag was left on a flight somewhere. And I didn't have a stick bag or sticks. Oh, and he no. was my drum thing, and he said, in his very thick accent, "Let me sort it out for you." <laughs> it doesn't sound like him. No, no, it doesn't sound like him at all. And when Nick hears, he's gonna go, "Do you know I don't sound like?" Him. I just love that. Though. I love said, whatever, whoever that was. He I goes, love oh, "Okay, let me sort it out for you." So, so I come back. I have a photo of it. And I'll send it to you guys. But he he found all these sticks, 
and he made this plastic bag like MacGyver, yeah. and he, he he made a stick bag for me. So that immediately forged a friendship. Yeah, yeah. He's gonna <laughs> so, be your tech. So he's my tech, and I kept telling him, as I always do with everyone, there's more. I, I want you to think about starting your own company because you're good at what you do. You're a great communicator. And and we talked and talked and talked. Now he has his own production company. He's the head of production for Nile Rodgers and Sheik. Do you know what I love about this chat and what, what I love about you, Ralph, is that there's so many facets to you. And some people just know what they know and know that one thing. But what I've really enjoyed is hearing how you clearly just embraced life. When yes. When that is, being <clears throat> domesticated as a child. Let me tell you something. Bringing that, you know, it's just brilliant. Thank you. You, you have to understand that life is a 24-hour experience. Every 24 yeah. hours, you get a chance to start over if you're here. We all know stories of people that were here today and were gone tomorrow for whatever reason. So while you're here, all of those passions that you think about, do them. Just do them. Why not do them? Why not leave? Why leave it to to saying, "Oh, if I would have," or "What if I tried?" Or this, you know, those things. When you get old, in my opinion, will haunt you because you didn't try when you had the ability to actually do it. Pass or fail is a pass if you just finish the thought. Just give it a try. Finish the thought. Then it's not a failure. We've, we've got one final question. One final question, because I know we need to, to wrap up. So we ask all of our guests to recommend either a live album or a live track, or maybe it's um, a, a live performance that's been captured on video, on, on YouTube. The example we always give is, is, is Prince playing his guitar solo on my, while my guitar gently weeps, where he throws his guitar in the air and it disappears. It's and such a video. Yeah, but but um, is there a go-to live track or video or album that you could recommend? A lot. Yeah, I, I would have to say there's an Earth, Wind, and Fire live. Yeah. Yeah. That when they, when I was a kid, my friend Alan Breeden, who's a keyboard player, we just lost him recently. We spent years, me, him, and Audie Durant, which is Patrice's brother, <clears throat> listening to Earth, Wind & Fire Live. Yeah. Um, it's one of the best live albums that, that's ever made. A highlight of my life, of my life was meeting uh, the actual members of Earth, Wind & Fire and, and touring with them with Nile Rodgers and Sheik. Verdine White is one of the funniest people, you most down-to-earth funny and Ralph and I really hit it off. Me and Ralph Johnson hit it off. Well, we are, we are actually talking about doing a, a masterclass uh, tour together. Uh, that's how close we be, we had become on the tour. Oh, uh, but as you know, careers in life and COVID, yeah. prison, all of that kind of stopped everything. Yeah. But that live album is probably one of the best live albums you'll ever hear. Right. Yeah. We're that, gonna put it on. We're, your we're left to page. find that. Is is it a specific year or, um, or name ooh, to it? It's back in the seventies, okay. and I cannot remember the name of the album, but it's the it's the live <clears throat> performance uh, with Philip Bailey doing Reasons. Oh, he, right, right, at right. the at the end, he hits this incredibly high note, and I think people's eyes popped out of their head in the audience. <laughs> but, but but I'll find out the name and I'll, I'll give it to. you. Fantastic. Well, I've realised that this is an episode, but we've, there's a series in this. Do you know, we, we've hardly touched on the Apollo 
And so yeah. you're coming back with now, uh, you're doing the Peace Hall next year, is that right? Yes. I think so, yeah. Yes, yeah. You, are, you are, because actually, a lot of dates you're, from you're, this you're part, <laughs> this makes me laugh, but you're part of my wife's Christmas present from her best friends. Yeah, you don't know Does this, she know Ross, that? But, um, was, it, was it a surprise? She, yeah, no, no, it wasn't because she's coming to see that gig and ah. it should have been yeah, just now, true. and it's now next year. Ah. So um, we, that'll be, yeah, Christmas is too late, so we're gonna catch up with you. In, in Halifax next year when you and we'll talk Apollo because we've hardly touched on the yeah, Apollo yeah that, that was a, an amazing experience for me so we'll do an Apollo special absolutely and, <laughs> and I'll I'll bring the cookies or you bring the cookies Chris or... I'll bring the cookies <laughs> well done <laughs> thank you very much Robert. did you just trick me into no, that because that was that was not that was really cool that you well, did that maybe I did yeah. <laughs> nailed it Alex and we've got to give a, a, a quiet but very obvious thank you to Super Ann Yes, Anne McCoy. Who may or may not be sat with us, ladies and gentlemen. Super yeah. Maybe himself. we'll never know. Uh, Maybe yeah. we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. Ralph Roll, you are a legend. And oh, send our love to Sheik and just enjoy every moment on that stage tonight in Manchester. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm sure it's going it to be great. Thank yeah. you, Brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. Thank you, thank so you much. very much. Ralph Roll there. Oh, what Gosh. an absolute star. I, I wish that was four or five hours long. Well, again, you know, you've you mentioned in a, a couple of podcasts back me yet again saying we could talk all day. We need to get you back. But honestly, with with Ralph, we hardly touched on his time at the Apollo. We hardly no. mentioned it. And no, not at all. And so definitely, we're definitely going to do that because Ralph has said he'll, he'll be delighted to come on again. And um, we will chat to him specifically about his, was it 15 years, 17? It just um, a, a massive stint that he did at the Apollo. And the artists that he played with there will just blow your mind. It's just everyone. He played with everyone. Um, and I love that level of just professionalism and where you get to the absolute pinnacle of your, your career where it's not like you're name dropping. It's just, it's inevitable. It's unavoidable that you'll just clunk. <laughs> you'll yeah, just be course. dropping them, dropping them <laughs> left, right, All and center. And it's unavoidable because that is, you know, the, that's the circles that you move in. That is um, where you are professionally. And um, yeah, it's just a and, pleasure. To and living to. in, living in, you know, a Marvel, universe that we are out in the world ralph roll is a superhero and so his origin story see what i did there is just fantastic i love the story of of that drum kit and his brother and how he started and then he brought me to tears coming up to date now on the ralph roll that he is and the family that he has in in his bands specifically with Sheik and Nile Rogers and how the band and the crew were just in tears and hugging each other and how this you know these first gigs back after the lockdown just meant the world to them and literally you know they felt they were family it's just mm. it 
Oh, it was it was incredible. And they're coming back. Oh, are they, they're coming back? They're coming back next year because they've got a few rescheduled dates from this they year. They have, one of which is Peace Hall in Halifax. That's right, in Halifax. So yeah, hopefully we we'll be able to get over there and 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 get him on again, um, but talk more about those Apollo years and yeah. more uh, about the um, uh, the actual live gigs that he's had there. But I'm guessing just, you've seen amazing. Niall Rogers uh, and mm. Sheik before. Lucky, um, lucky enough, yeah. Yeah. Did you did you see them at Kendall Calling and Glastonbury? Or <laughs> did I see them? At, but I saw them at Kendall. I can't remember if I saw them at Glastonbury. I apologise, everyone. But they are. I mean, there's something else, and the fact that Ralph had said that they don't don't even rehearse together now. They are such individual professionals that they can, after a pandemic, meet together and just pick it up where they left off. Yeah, they're that, not there at the sound check. That that blows my mind. Yeah, it blows my mind. It, it's it's genuinely incredible, and you know, all of them. Those singers, oh, Voices of mm. Angels, Niall is just ridiculous. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, we don't normally give many shout-outs to other podcasts, but I must mention um, our friend Craig Parkinson and his two-shot podcast because at Kendall Calling a couple of years ago, he mm. did a live um, recording of the, the two-shot pod with Niall Rogers, and it's a cracker. It's such a good episode. So, yeah, if you haven't heard the two-shot pod, definitely seek it out because craig's an absolute cracker and just gets the best out of every guest but this one in particular seek it out so it's from a couple of years back is it yes yeah, from 20 2019 yeah and it, it, it was amazing when he walked in because it was at the venue was at tim peaks where i know i've mentioned that's where um you know i would do family stuff and activities at kendall Colin. and it was you just knew you in the presence of a superstar but there was mm. no there's no diva around him just the most heartwarming smile mm. from Niall and just a loving uh, aura. Yeah, beautiful man. So hopefully next year we'll um, we'll get Ralph and who knows, maybe Niall will be in the vicinity and we might be able to just say, hello, Niall. Have you I'm ever been to, to a this. gig? Thank you. <laughs> Have you been to a live music? Who do you love? Uh, concerts, Mr. Rogers. Do you love uh, the concerts? Have you got a ticket stub uh, from a concert? And he'll say have yes, you? and we'll go. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Rogers. Have you ever bought a ten-pound T-shirt from uh, a man outside a gig selling unlicensed merchandise after a gig that you've just been inside outside of? <laughs> We're getting very Vic and Bob now. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway on that note i think alex is his blood sugar is going down so you, you've been in the broom cupboard too much you, you need to someone, get some food someone no jokes please about closets <laughs> but i'm i'm off back in and um keep in touch with us across social media facebook twitter and please please subscribe to the podcast please give it a review and rate it because it helps us massively and tell all your friends and family and your nan and your neighbor and your dog set up an account and the email account for your dog get them to do it as well and it has been working it has uh, it has been working at one point last week 
we were at number six in the Apple Music interviews right. chart, which was ridiculous. ridiculous. And it, it, that means absolutely nothing to us, right? It, the no. the number in the chart. No, it, well, <laughs> it does to Alex. It doesn't to me. No, I haven't either. Um, but the main thing is that when people go on to um, uh, Apple Podcasts and iTunes on iTunes, um, they will see the um, Gig Stories podcast logo. Hello. Far Hello. earlier. They, they exactly. don't have to scroll through loads and loads. They'll see it earlier, and it means more people hear the pod, and that's all we want. That's really. right. Why should you have to listen to this? You know, yeah. Share the, share the pain with your friends and family. A problem shared is a problem halved. <laughs> and apples and doctors daily or something. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for your support. We do love it. And we will see you very soon for another new episode with a fabulous guest. You won't want to miss that one. See you soon. Goodbye. Bye for now. See you later. Bye.